0: So we are continuing in our series in the book of Psalms this summer. We are in Psalm 73. That's front loaded with lament and sorrow. Who wants that, right? I have enough sorrow in my life. Who, who wants to come to church and, and feel the pain and suffering that I felt all week long? Well, the reality is that that's our reality, pain and suffering is a part of this life. And that's why we come and we sing and pray prayers of lament, because we live east of Eden. We live in a sin-cursed world. And despite the curated Facebook pages and the filtered Instagram pictures, life can be hard. Uh, Maybe you've felt that a little bit more during this COVID season, And, and, and you've noticed in your own life that there is pain. Maybe that's one of the things God is doing through the coronavirus, is he's opening our eyes up to the pain around us, the pain in our own hearts that we dull through social media, through entertainment, through alcohol, through food, and he's trying to tell us, come to me, it reminds me, for those of us who try to deny pain or medicate our pain, it reminds me of uh, that cult classic *Princess Bride*. Do you remember? Wesley turned. Yes, I got a hoo hoo over here. Wesley uh, turned to the dreaded pirate Roberts, and he he bests the the Spaniard with the sword and the giant. And he finally gets to Vincini, uh, and inconceivably, he bests Vincini too, and he takes the princess, and she doesn't yet know who he is, and and they're they're discussing, and she's saying how much pain she is in, and 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 that. Uh, you know, Dread Pirate Roberts killed Wesley, and her life is, is, is painful, and, and, and he replies to her, and she says, you mock my pain, and he says to her, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Life is pain and suffering. The psalms tell us though, the very structure of the psalms that move from lament to praise tell us that life is pain and yet we can trust God. Life is pain and yet we can praise him. Life is pain and suffering, the psalmist says in Psalm 73, yet I will praise because God is good. That's going to be the overall pattern of this psalm this morning. But the question is, how do we reconcile God's goodness with pain in life? Should it be that way? Should it be that the wicked prosper, have good things, and the righteous suffer? According to Psalm 1, the righteous are are like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and everything they do will prosper. And Psalm 73 tells us, that is generally true, but in a life east of Eden, in a sin-cursed world, it's not always true. Asaph, who is the author of this psalm, has dashed expectations. This is the pain that he's suffering and that we suffer. We have unmet expectations, and therefore we have pain and suffering in our life. Someone pains us by the text that they sent. Someone someone hurts us by leaving us out of something. But And, and we feel pain by unmet expectations. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And we're going to enter into this psalm through four questions this morning. Uh, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things Happen to bad people, verses one through fifteen. Secondly, we're going to see how we're going to ask the question: How can I trust God in verses sixteen and seventeen? Then we're going to ask: How can I have hope, in verses eighteen through sixteen? Then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up with what will happen in the end, in verses twenty-seven through twenty-eight. Life is pain and suffering, yet in the end, I will praise God because He is good. In fact, that's where Asaph, the author of this poem, this song, begins with the creed, God is good. God is good. And everything that goes with that, what's all encapsulated in the goodness of God, that he is full of love, steadfast love, covenant love. He is, he is faithful. He is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love but he is also just and righteous and he will not let sin go unpunished this is all part of god's goodness that he's kind and just he's merciful and just and that's what asaph is saying that god is good this is his creed and and you know asaph was one of david's musicians he he was he was brought into uh, the, the temple, he, w- he was brought into Jerusalem to minister song before the ark of God. And you know the ark, it was, uh, it was, it was where God chose to, for his presence to dwell. And, and David appointed Asaph to be a singer. And, and Asaph happens to show up when the ark comes back to Jerusalem. The ark of the covenant, the, the covenant presence of God comes back to God's people. And there Asaph is leading God's people in song to say how good and pleasant it is to be in his presence. You can, you can see that in 1 in, uh, Chronicles. You can trace it out, and there he is. He's there when David brings the presence of God back to Jerusalem, the, the, the symbol of God's presence back to Jerusalem. He's there when Solomon dedicates the temple. He's singing as the ark is put into the temple, and God chooses to dwell with his people. And there is Asaph's sons, After the people have been exiled and are being sent back to Jerusalem by Cyrus, their Asaph sons are appointed to sing God's praises to to God with God's people to say that he is good, even in the darkest of times. And it's no accident that Asaph begins book three of the book of Psalms. Do you remember Davey and I both have said it, but the book of Psalms is sort of structured in, in five books. And uh, book three is chapter 73 through 89. It's actually the darkest of all the books of the Psalms. The Psalms move from lament to praise. There's always, there's always praise in the lament, except in Psalm 88. And this is, scholars think, this is representative of the time when God's people were in exile, when God was sort of punishing his king and sending his people into exile. What do God's people sing when they're in exile, when they're miserable? What do they sing? They sing psalms like this. And even in the darkest part of exile, Asaph says, God is good. So why do, bad things hap- why do good things happen to bad people? Verses 1 through 15. Asaph, the, the singer, the appointed singer of God's people says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked... Asaph's creed that God is good and all that goes in that, you can see very quickly in verses 2 and 3, his experience is contradicting his creed. I I almost stumbled because I believed God was good, but then I saw this. The wicked prosper. My creed and my expectation of my life do not match, and that causes me pain and suffering. God may be good but he's not good to me it seems that Asaph is saying. He seems to be good to these wicked people. If God is good why do wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? That's what he's asking and he's telling us he's he's letting us in on his thought process that though he saw this that Not only God was good, his experience contradicted it, but it actually led to sin. The right creed, God is good, with the temporal human experience, plus a sinful nature, led Asaph to envy the arrogant and the wicked. You can see it there in verses 1 through 3. The reality led to an identity to identify his sin. He was envious. He saw what he saw was reality. It was reality. It seems like the wicked are prospering because they have all of these things. But it's not the final reality. Asaph is not content to have easy answers to this. See, many Christians would just say, would, would just gloss over this. Sweep it under the rug, if you will. Pretend bad things don't actually exist. Asaph's not going to do that. He's going to say what he experienced. This experience for him was painful. And he explains it in verses 4 through 12. Here's the explanation that led him to say, God is good, but he's not good for me, and I am envious of the wicked. Verse 4. They have no pain, and they have the body I want. Isn't it interesting that they have no pain until death and their bodies are fat and sleek? As it looks like Asaph thinks that this belongs to him as a person of God, that this prosperity belongs to him, not to the wicked. Verse 5, he says, they have no trouble as others they have, they're not troubled as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're, they're just, their life is smooth sailing. Verse 6, they're, they're proud about it even. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They wear it around like jewelry, flaunting it in front of everybody, saying violence covers them as a garment. They're, they're proud and they're violent. Verse 7, they have so much that they wasted. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies, and this is making Asaph envious and questioning whether God is really good to him. But that's not the worst of it. In verses 8 through 12, they actually rub Asaph's face in it. It's worse because they not only have these things that he thinks he should have, but they're rubbing now his face in it. They scoff, verse eight says, and they speak with malice, loftily, they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their, their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are wicked behold, these are the wicked. They are always at ease. They increase in riches they they scoff they act like god's not there they have their their sycophants that that run after them and say that they can do no wrong and they they worship success and and it seems to be paying off for them and this is why asaph is troubled maybe it's maybe you have experienced this have you browse other people's Facebook pages, pages Instagram posts, Twitter, and you, and you say, why do the wicked people seem to be prospering? Does it make you envy? Be honest. Does it make you envy? Does it make you think, why am I a Christian? Why am I living this pure life if I don't get all of these things? Friends, this is, if the psalm ended in verse 12, it would be a sad day. But the, the, honest, the honesty of it all is that this is human experience for us. We, we all have envied the wicked. We all have wondered why the criminal gets to drive the nice car and live in the big house and seem to have no troubles at all. We all wonder why God doesn't immediately reward our good deeds with wealth and health and prosperity. The result of these circumstances for Asaph is that he has a pity party. In verses 13 through 15. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I will speak thus I would have betrayed the generation of the children, of your children. The result of these circumstances, if we sit in them and leave ourselves there and and think envious thoughts is that we will have a pity party too. Uh, um, I'm going to open up a little bit, okay? So this is is hard. Um, But I will confess that this has happened to me even in my last church. I went from a lead pastor to merging with another church and coming on as an assistant pastor, an associate pastor, and my job, here's what I felt like, this was not reality, and if my friends who are at that place hear this, just realize, I I was blinded by my sin, just like Asaph was, but I went from lead pastor to pastor of operations, and I planned the meals. And oftentimes I, I felt like I was the only one cleaning up after, and I thought, man, I guess I'm the pastor of taking out garbage. I guess I'm the I guess I'm the pastor of uh, uh, events. And, and and you know the reality was I saw other people. Even as I was looking for another job, I saw other people who, who always got what they wanted. They got good jobs and they were making lots of money. And, and, and my heart even turned to my my brother pastors. And, and became envious of them. This is what sin can do to us, friends. It makes us have pity parties. It blinds us to the realities of life. Was it really true that all the wicked people that Asaph saw prospering had no troubles? Most definitely it was not true. Sin was blinding him. It was keeping him in the dark. Unhealthy, sinful, ugly things grow in the dark good healthy God-pleasing things grow in the light so what will you do Asaph what will you do friend will you allow your envy your struggles to stay in the dark or will you bring them out into the light will you confess your sin to other people Will you confess your sin against, uh, of, of pride and arrogance uh, to God, thinking uh, you know how things should be? Will you confess it and forsake it? Bring it into the light. I wonder what Asaph will do. You can see it start to turn a little bit in, in verse 15, can't you? He has this moment of awakening. He said, If I spoke out loud, Everything I had just written down, if I had spoke there and ended it there, I would have betrayed your people. This would have been wrong. You see the seeds of confession in in verses 2 and 3 that he admits his envious of the arrogance, of the arrogant people. And then in verse 15 he says, oh man, uh, my sin is actually going to have effect on other people. And the question is, what will Asaph do? Will he bring it out into the light? We see a turning point as we move from why do good things happen to bad people to how can I trust God in verses 16 and 17. We see the psalmist is turned, but when I thought how to understand this, how God is good, when my experience reflects something else, I was wearied by it. It's a wearisome task. It's, It's hard until the light starts to break in on this dark psalm of envy and pride in verse 17. Until I went into God's sanctuary. So I went to the sanctuary. That's the, where, you know, it's where the presence of God is. It's where God's presence and his people meet together and they worship corporately in a very special way. And, and the light shines out. How can I trust God? The psalmist says, go into the sanctuary of God and worship with His people. Corporate worship is the answer to hope, to, to, the, to the darkness that will, that will bring hope, that will bring you to trusting in God. How can I trust God? Worship Him with His people. The light starts to break in on the darkness and, and it's then that he starts to discern the wicked's end. It's it's then when he goes in and worships with God's people and the light comes on he says, this was actually the reality all the time. The right creed, God is good, plus eternal perspective, as you're brought into the presence of God, worshiping him rightly according to his word. Right creed, eternal perspective equals hope. Drawing near to God and his people makes sense out of our experience. Hope seems elusive. Not in sight. And that's exactly what sin wants to do to you. It wants you to draw you away from God. Not near him. Away from God's people. Not near them. This is this is why we put a premium on corporate worship as we gather together. And When I say worship, I don't just mean singing; I mean the the prayers, the preaching of God's word, the taking communion together. This is the corp. This is the premium God wants because it makes sense of life. Friend, if you're if you're not a Christian and you have questions about this, if you think there are If you're suspicious about why a pastor would be saying uh, to worshiping with God's people, and that makes sense of life, uh, just come talk to me. I'd love to answer any of your questions if I'm able to. It is drawing near to God that makes sense of the suffering of God's people. It's what gives us hope, and we move from how can I trust God to how can I have hope? In verses 18 through 26. How can I trust God? You get eternal perspective by worshiping with God's people. And, and then you ask the question, well, how can I have hope in all this? Well, since God is good, you can have hope. You just notice, turn your eyes to the, to the scriptures. We can have hope because God is patiently just. Look at verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places, this is their end. This is the, this is the end. This is, this is the reality of wicked people. How they are destroyed in a moment, verse 19. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here's the reality. That God is just. And he's going to deal with the wickedness on this earth. If wickedness has been done to you, you can know that a just God is going to put it right. He's going to set it right. And this brings hope. But God's not just just, he's patiently just. This doesn't happen till the end. God's goodness is seen in the destruction of the evil. And who doesn't want Hitler to pay for his crimes? Who doesn't want the truly evil to pay for what they've done? I mean, we all do. And that justice inside of you, friends, that justice is welling up when you see, when you see wrong going on and you, and you want things to be made right, that's from God himself. He's given that to you. And he, it's meant to point back to him and say, only you are fully just, God. We can have hope because God is patiently just. He's patiently just. We even see his patient justice in the psalmist's confession. Notice in verses 21 and 22 that the psalmist doesn't just see them out there as wicked. The psalmist sees himself as wicked. Here's his full confession. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Basically, When I became bitter about my circumstances and the wealth and and prosperity of the pride, I turned to you, you pricked me in my heart because I became like a beast who didn't understand. I became, I was ignorant. And here's his full confession as he's coming. He's seeing that all wickedness will be taken care of and be set right. And in the end it will, but so will mine and so will yours. So how is that hope? God is just, but everyone besides Jesus Christ is wicked, and we would be put to dust. We will be like phantoms, like, like, worthless, like worthless things in the end because we will be far away from God. There's hope because God is patiently just, but how, how was that hope? How was that hope for me? but we also have hope in verses 23 through 26 because God is graciously near. God is graciously near. Here's the fuller explanation of verse one. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward will receive me to glory. Nevertheless, even though I'm wicked, though God will put all wickedness to an end, he himself has made a way back to himself, near to God. So, all of our arrogance, all of our pride, all of the wickedness will be done away with. But nevertheless, he is near to us. How is that possible? How is it that he holds our right hand? As one commentator says, he, he guides us, he grips us with his right hand. He's guiding us, and he will, he will bring us into glory. This is, this is God doing this for Asaph, even though he himself was wicked. How is that possible? Friends, the only way that this is possible is through a perfect one who will bridge the gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and, and he will stretch out his arms and, and bring the two together through his death on the cross. It's only possible through Jesus Christ who was the fully righteous one who fully took the anger and wrath of God on himself who fully drunk down the cup of God's wrath so that you might have the cup of God's blessing. Jesus Christ is the nevertheless. I'm continually with you. How is that possible? It's through Jesus. It's through the one who who came and lived a perfect life and, and died in your place. This goodness of Jesus is the salvation of people, but only those who will turn to him. Only those who will say, I was ignorant of all of this. Only you are good. Only you are good. You're the one who's been gripping and guiding and, gl- and will glorify me in the end. I put all my trust in you. If you're not a Christian, you, there's hope now, friends. There's hope now. You can put your trust in Christ now. You don't need anyone to pray with you. There is no mediator except Jesus Christ. And he gives you access to God through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And Jesus Christ is the nevertheless. And notice his response to this. In verses 25 and 26, he then says, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh, they were about to fail me. But God, you are the strength of my heart, my portion forever. He is all that I need. All of that prosperity and health and wealth, it's not really what I needed. It's God himself, and I get him forever. So then we move on to the last question. How can I have hope? It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that has gripped us, is guiding us, and will bring us into glory it is God who is our portion forever. So what will happen in the end? Verses 27 and 28 are just a recapitulation of 18 through 26. It's just a restatement of it. And he says in verse 27, Those he puts to an end are far from him. Far, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Those he puts to an end are those who do not do not want a relationship with him. They'll take the goods over God. They'll take the wealth over a Savior. Their portion is in this life only. Therefore, they will have no portion in the end. It's those who do not confess their sins, who never knew Christ that he will put to an end. The offer is still there for you. Will you trust him? But for me, he says, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And here, here it comes. This is what we were made for. The Psalms is the, the worship book of God's people. The entrance is, is, if you'll remember, through Psalms 1 and 2, through, through the righteous one who takes refuge in Jesus. It's the king. It's the true king is the only way into the worship of God's people. That's what you were created for as a human being, to worship God. And now he's saying to you, be near to that one. It is good. What is good? God is good. It's good for me to be near him. And because he is near God, then he has salvation. It is this one, back again, it's, it's I've taken refuge in him. What's he taking refuge from? He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. I I have made God my refuge. From what? From verses 4 through 15? Verses 18 through 20? Verse 27? God becomes the refuge against his own wrath. You take refuge in him, and then he will shield you from his own wrath in his son Jesus Christ. It's the, it's the only explanation. This reality gives pain and suffering a purpose for the Christian. Your pain and suffering has meaning, brother and sister. You're, you're this, this life that has felt so hard, in the end, Paul tells us it, it, it won't even compare to the weight of glory that is before you. Because of the refuge of God himself. Friends, if you have never taken refuge in him, turn to him now. Brother and sister of the branch, remember, you, you need to have this in your mind when you're feeling envious of the wicked. When you're feeling like God isn't really good to me, When when you let your circumstances dictate your position, you need to remember that circumstances do not dictate it. God does. He's the one. Remember the gospel. Remember the good news of Jesus Christ. When when we put our hope in him, it makes sense of everything. Turn to God. Turn to God to the worship of God with God's people and he will bring you hope. Let's pray. Father,